and it, it would be like if there were four accountants on the entire planet. So we're back. We're back from hiatus, and we actually gave our podcast a name. We, we've called it Impossible to Manage. And it's about both ourselves, because Nicole and I always been impossible for people to manage, uh, except, except for one another. Nicole and I have managed each other so well <laughs> over the years, and that's why we continue to work together and continue to be friends and record this podcast for you. And Impossible to Manage is about all of the difficult and, uh, frankly, impossible challenges that seem to show up in work and in our society and in our ability to survive both of those things. Nicole has a degree in American Studies with a focus on race from Stanford University and a MBA from University of California at Berkeley. She has over 25 years experience dealing with gnarly workplace problems. <laughs> I'm Danilo, and I'm a self-taught software engineer and interaction designer. I have been trying to make work suck less so that everyone will get out of my way so I can get back to work on the software that I care so much about. We've been on hiatus for the last year, and we're back because we love doing this podcast, and we love talking to you about work. So here we are. We're excited to be with you again. Why do we talk about culture on our, our show? Like, why do we bother with that? Well, What does that I have wanna... to do with work? We can't separate work from culture. It's like saying we're going to forget everything that's going on in the world the minute we walk in the door. And as much as there are so many business leaders who wish that were true, that we weren't bringing in the, the trauma of this period in time, uh, or any period in time, really, into work with us, it, 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 is, it always has a, a presence. And that goes not just for politics, that goes for popular culture as well. So number one, when we talk about culture in the workplace, popular culture is an influence. Number two, if we don't really understand the race implications of popular culture, both for good, for example, a lot of the, the of what we consider to be consumable popular culture has its origins in Black American culture. And then third, I mean, culture builds our understand popular culture builds our understanding of the world for good or not. So when we talk about things like implicit bias and how we quickly judge people by the way they look or by the accent with which they speak or, you know, whatever it is, how they dress, um, is largely informed and and um, then informs popular culture for good or not. And, and a lot of it is enacted in biases in the workplace when we talk about people, when we interact with people. And if you don't understand what's at play in popular culture, you're going to miss a lot of the common parlance of how people are relating to each other in diverse groups across this huge country of ours. You know, uh, the beloved departed Toni Morrison mm. said that narrative is one of the principal ways that we learn. And I think that that is really something that shows up with mm. media. We are spending so much time with media. And whether we want to or not, whether we realize it or not, we are learning things from it. And even though we know that these things aren't all, you know, true, there is truth even in our fiction, and it's good to develop some cultural literacy, I, I think, around that. And mm -hmm. that brings us to why you want to talk about 9 to 5. <laughs> well, if we're going to keep our scope to the workplace. What is 9 to 5? <laughs> there is no greater crossover... Well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll qualify that. It is hard to find, for me, a more significant culture crossover between popular culture and real life than 9 to 5. The 1980 movie 
starring Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton, and Jane Fonda, along with Dabney Coleman and a cast of others, in which three women who work in an office setting, um, one who is a rising star but doesn't ever get her due, that's Lily Tomlin, one as a new worker temp who recently is divorcing her husband and needs to find a job for, for the first time in many years. Uh, that's Jane Fonda. And the boss's uh, assistant, that is Dolly Parton. And they come at this very dysfunctional workplace from three disparate parts of the workplace. And it is, so for me, I was probably seven years old when it came out. And I got to see it because the song, the Dolly Parton song was like number one forever. And my mom was like, yeah, let's go see it. And I was just riveted. It was women in the workplace. And I was like... So you're seven years old and you're seeing women in the workplace depicted in media. And what is the message that (laughs) this story delivered to your seven-year-old brain about women, about yourself, perhaps, at work? Well, first and foremost, it never occurred to me that that adults worked in offices. I mean, I guess I knew that. But the only adults I really had come across in my life at that point were my teachers and people who worked at the school and my parents, neither of whom worked in an office. And so I found it very fascinating that these people's jobs were to sort of sit inside this place all day and they weren't using their bodies particularly. You know, it was was like they weren't working with their hands. And then I saw these women basically taking on a, 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 a sick culture, which was particularly sick, sickened at the hands of a of a lecherous boss in Dabney Coleman, who's just fantastic in it. And it ends up being this madcap sort of, you know, series of, series of unfortunate events that caused them to hold their boss captive. I knew enough that this was pretend, right? That this was like not, they weren't actually hurting this man. It was more of a... And, and this is not an accurate depiction of what it is to actually work in an office. Like, you, <laughs> right, you understood. Right. You, don't, you don't ultimately, I mean, ho- I hope you did not hold your boss hostage. The things that I was watching on the screen were things that I was already noticing around me. I have two older sisters who were teenagers at that point, And the Dolly Parton character becoming sort of having rumors about her, you know, sleeping with the boss and those sorts of things. Like... I recognize this lecherous kind of that behavior from other things that I'd seen had been had been exposed to with my sisters, you know, whatever they were watching. I'm like, okay, there's that. And then there's the women being overlooked in the workplace for for all of their hard work. I was like, well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I definitely know my working class upbringing. We talked a lot about how how people were passed over for promotions and and consideration for things because that's a huge part of a working class narrative is it's not fair. Work isn't fair. Elizabeth Warren is using this nine to five theme. Yeah, no, what, do you, great. What, do you, what do you make of that? Oh, I think it's great. I think for people like me who are aware of the message behind that, behind that um, song, which ended up being about being treated well, fair wages, you know, um, bosses that suck. Uh, I think... I love I love the message that it's like, yep, regular people who are experiencing this totally unnecessary set of what we have just determined to be regular things, like it's not okay. And it's it it's um looking out for I don't want to say regular people, but I do want to say like, you know, working people, people who are living paycheck to paycheck, piecing several gigs together, people who, you know, are the first in their family to have a professional job it, you know, in in an office setting. You know, all those kinds of things where, where we're all somewhere, most of us are somewhere on that spectrum and not the extraordinary individuals who end up making policy. And I don't mean extraordinary because they're better than the rest of us. I just mean extraordinary, like a billionaire, you know, right. like that. Do, do you think that Warren is also implicitly encouraging us to all hogtie the shitty men <laughs> running the world? And- <laughs> Uh, I don't know, imprison them somewhere I, where they can't do any more harm? I mean, in Dabney Coleman's case, it was a garage door opener that really kept him in check. Um, if I could, if, if I could, you know, put a, a few key world leaders in that position, um, probably I would. 
Well, I, I, I think you're meant to at least start thinking about it. Oh. And not just world leaders, but, but also business leaders, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, I think I actually, I actually have already done that. Wow. No, I'm joking. Wow. I'm joking. On that note, I want to talk about Hong Kong. And I want to talk about Hong Kong not because you and I are experts on Hong Kong. We're, we're really not. But you and I very regularly for the last couple of months, like once a week, one of us will send the other, like, look at the latest thing from Hong Kong. Uh, and so, of course, we defer to experts on Hong Kong to explain what's going on there. But I would love to talk about why we think that a Hong Kong-style protest where things are very heavily organized, things are well-coordinated, and most importantly, things are sustained for weeks on weeks on weeks. Why do you imagine that despite the discontent we experience here in the United States, why, why haven't we seen this sort of action? I, I think it goes back to what we were talking about before. If you're going to be part of a sustained action that's going to be in the streets um, and, and keep those numbers, right? There was a point last week or the week before when one day there were 1.7 million people out on the streets in Hong Kong, right? And, and that's a regular thing. Like, like they've it's got been, in the millions, right, in the millions. consistently. And, and I think that we are such cogs in a system that we can't fathom taking off work we will lose our jobs, we will lose our homes, we will lose, you know, what security we've built for ourselves would be gone if we were out in the streets every day. We do not have a cooperative enough system that could sustain that. Even when I think about like, you know, the Montgomery bus boycotts, there was a system to make sure that people could still get where they were going of cooperation. Of cooperation, of, of an interdependence, people giving rides, people. And I don't want to overly romanticize it. I wasn't there. But it's been a while since I've been part of a protest, a protest movement or, or something where, where that much infrastructure, where people could actually sustain that much infrastructure. I think Black Lives Matter did an amazing job of sustaining the, the of keeping the heat on. For as, for as long as they could until it, it broke a lot of people. I mean, people lost their lives during Black Lives Matter. They sure as hell lost their jobs. Organizers um, years later are still losing their lives under still, yeah. very dubious circumstances. Right. And a couple of folks went to, went to prison, right? Um, and so, you know, I think effect, what the FBI did in the 60s all too effectively with, for example, taking out the leadership of the Black Panthers... And living with the specter of that, you know, these are life and death issues. This isn't hypothetical. So not only do you use, lose your job, housing, ability to take care of your family in this structure, you could also lose your life. And in the United States, we know police don't have a great track record of discipline with that trigger finger. And, you know, we're talking, this isn't new, they shot four white kids at Kent State. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not, it, it is part of the legacy of, of the Fugitive Slave Act and people hunt, and, and the police hunting people down that, that allows us to live in this fear that is rational. It is not an irrational fear. And so I am not saying that protesters in Hong Kong are safe. None of them have lost their lives or would lo lose their lives. Of course, we know that's not the case. But in an American context, I think, wow, we would need some serious infrastructure to sustain that level of, um, of being in the streets for that long with that number of people. Capitalism doesn't allow for it. Well, and the, the cooperation you mentioned, I, I think, is really important. And, and for those who aren't paying attention, like... It's wild how Hong Kongers are getting together and looking out for each other. They're leaving. Um, they don't want to use any sort of electronic payment in the stations, and so they will pay cash for metro tickets and leave them in stacks so that people who need to get to or from the actions can do that uh, without having to pull out their credit cards. Mm -hmm. They're leaving changes of clothes. 
so that if they've been marked by the dyes that the police are using to spray protesters, they can change their clothes before they hop on a train so that they're not nabbed later on. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of this cooperation going on where Hong Kongers look at one another and see a single family even of, of people they want to look out for. And in the United States, we didn't get that deal. We, we've got this class interest being subverted by white supremacy, right? Where we have told people like, hey, if you're broke, it's okay because you're still white. And we're <laughs> still going to give you a little bit more extra because that makes you special. And we've had that deal going now for centuries and I don't know how you break that cycle. And I, and I think without that cycle broken, it's really hard to see the sort of cooperation that you need to make this happen. Yeah, and I, I think that, um, you know, it, it's, it's always been the, the, one of the tensions in the United States is this love of the individual, of, of each right. of us being unique versus a more traditional sense that, uh, for, uh, you know, cultures from which many of us come, where there's much more interdependence and um, multi-generational living and people looking out for each other. Like, when I think I've told you this story before, Daniela, but my parents lived in Berkeley in the 60s, and they were in the middle of all of, all of the protests and the counterculture movement. And my dad was a student at the time, and, um, you know, I've said to my parents, why, weren't, why aren't there pictures of you out in the protests? You know, why, why, why weren't you out there? And they just looked at us and, she, and they said, who do you think was home with all the kids? Who do you, somebody had to babysit. Somebody had to make sure, you know, the kids got lunch. They couldn't be out on the streets getting tear gassed. So all, everybody would bring their kids over to our house and we would be the babysitters while folks were out in the streets. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's really, really important. Playing the support this, role. Yeah, and we do this thing that is deeply rooted in 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 capitalism and and colonial uh, sort of colonizer mentality, which is we want to see the heroes who are standing on the car with the bullhorn. You know, that's Mario Savio. Like, oh, well, he's a but, great. But who's taking care of the who's kids? Who's taking care of the kids? Who's just getting who's getting gallons of milk in case the tear gas comes? Who is passing out water so no one gets dehydrated and? And falls down. Who's back at home? Make, who's taking a second shift at a store so someone else can go be out there? It, it really takes the entire community to make this happen. And so ever since then, I was, I was probably like 16 when I, when I asked my parents this. And, and I, you know, ever since then, I always thought, I don't wonder about who's just on the street. I also want to know who's allowing that to happen. Who's enabling 1.7 million people to be out on the street? There is so much infrastructure that's built on that. And, and I don't know if it's the older generations who are, you know, minding the shop and, and smaller kids. But I think the world can expect more of this with, as millennials and Gen Z come together to realize that they're getting a raw deal. They're getting a raw deal globally. Um, and I think Th that feels unique about right now. Yeah. When I look around and I look at Hong Kong, when I look at protests in France, it feels as though there is a sense of globally shared grievance mm. where the people who are supposed to be in charge are not getting the job done well. And more and more of us are saying, this is not the way we expect it to go and you've got to do it differently. Mm. And I'm just, I'm wondering, you know, we, we had... A little bit right after the 2016 election, right after the inauguration, you know, we had the Women's March. Uh, they did the business with the Muslim ban and people were showing up at the airports. But the United States has not had a sustained response to this yet. Mm -hmm. And I think that as we look at the rumbles from possible recession, possible economic contraction. It's, it's already a state where people aren't in great shape economically, mm -hmm. but they can work two or three jobs and, and get by. What happens when you pull two or three jobs out of one out of three people's hats, right? Like, what happens when this really unequal gravy train comes to a halt? Well, 
I think it has for a huge swaths of people. You know, it's um, it's like uh, a handful of people figured out which slot machine was the winner, and they're standing in front of it. And they keep pulling the arm, and all the resources are getting sucked out of everybody else's slot machines, and everyone's looking around, going, "Wait, wait, 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 wait! What did they do over there? And why do coins keep coming out of that one? Where we're all over here wondering what the hell happened." And and it really is in some ways that random, given that none of us control the situation into which we're born. And so if you, if you take a poor white American boy born today and a poor black American boy born today, the white boy has a six times greater chance of transcending poverty than his black counterpart. And so I feel like on so many things, the Black Lives Matter movement was, was our first in, in this new era sustained um, effort. And as usual, you know, black Americans are ahead of the curve on on talking about what what hurts um, and what hurts society overall. And so I think it's taken a while, but but there is a greater number of people looking around as, as far as I can tell going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You yeah, mean, people are catching up. They're, ca- they're, they're catching up. And, and yes, it's going to take white folks catching up. Uh, it just it, it really is. And there's a 500 year gap to make up. 500 years of a crappy system that none of us asked for and we inherited that excludes some and includes others by design. And when more folks who are included in that system, right, full enfranchisement in politics, in, uh, in the economy, in, you know, education, etc., in work, then, and we have a critical mass of those folks going, wait, I actually am not okay with this anymore. That's one of the big tipping points, right? Um, and it's what's so frustrating. It's, you know, why we can't wait. It's, you know, every, every appeal that has been written to white America about why it hurts in this structure, um, I don't want to say it's finally being listened to, but uh, again, in my love-hate relationship with social media, the conversation certainly has scaled. We're, and, we're hitting a critical mass yeah. around awareness, around the dialogue, yep. absolutely. I'm here for it. Speaking of critical mass, I, I feel like, you know, you and I are, are very proximate to the technology industry specifically. And we keep hearing murmurings that it's time to organize. Mm-hmm. And for a very long time, this tech industry has felt pretty indifferent to it because it's like, well, we're all just temporarily embarrassed CEOs, right? We're, we're going to run our own company in just a moment. So why fuck up the deal where it's easy to exploit workers and, and get them to work 70-hour or 90-hour work weeks, whatever? And I think there was a lot of misplaced identification with management mm. um, from workers. And and now that's starting to change. You know, we, we heard some murmurings from... NPM that their management was trying to stop union activity and organizing there. And now we're seeing some stuff out of uh, Google's contract workers uh, have voted to form a union. And I think that the the contract angle here is very interesting because uh, for those who are not informed, the technology industry, like a lot of the uh, large corporate behemoths these days loves to create this sort of um, two-tiered system of employment, right? Where you've got a handful of folks who are getting full participation in the benefits and perks. They're getting stock. They're getting, uh, you know, access to, you know, fancy events and the ability to have flexibility in their workplace. And then we've got a handful of folks who don't get any of those things, but still show up to work in the exact same offices as the folks who are getting paid and the folks who are getting the deal. And so this two-tiered labor force in tech has been going on for a while, and it's a lot of custodial folks, it's security folks, food service, uh, but it's not just those roles. It is a lot of the more traditional stuff, too, in terms of software engineering design, that kind of thing, where Mm -hmm. it's just a lot more convenient for these companies to contract with a third party to hire you than to deal with bringing you on themselves. And so this has 
all kinds of implications for the workplace. And one of the big ones is that the contract employees don't have any leverage to improve work until now. That's right. And, you know, I've worked inside several companies that have this two-tiered system. And it is as stark as, um, you know, people will wear different, different color badges on their belts, like, you know, security badges. Um, and, and, you know, if you have a, a key card, it doesn't let you into every door if you have the wrong color. And, 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 I, and I get some of that is about security and, and protecting IP. However, that's not the impetus for this. The impetus for this was, like everything else, a money-saving proposition. And if you bring somebody in as a contractor, the reality is it is cheaper because you hire a third party to assign someone. You can try someone out. It's like a no-risk guarantee, basically. You have to pay the wages, but you do not pay the benefits. You do not pay the payroll taxes. You don't have to manage them as you would manage anybody else. There's no performance review type of process, feedback, loops, that kind of thing, unless you're on a particularly... Uh, thoughtful team with a particularly thoughtful manager and you might be doing the exact same work as the person next to you who is both making more and fully benefited in terms of you know equity in terms of health care in terms of you know gym allocations for for you know health care benefits and that kind of thing and if a contractor is not liked by the by the company then after however long they don't have to convert you to to full-time so the big, the brass ring in the contractor life for a lot of folks is, will I get converted to, to a permanent hire? Now the company has mitigated a lot of risk. They've tried you out. They've decided that you're worthy. And they just got you for 90 days at least for pretty cheap. And now we know that there are contractors who've gone on for years under this Oh, yeah. I, I knew someone who was making a pittance compared to... I, I would guess about a third of what, what the typical Google employee was making. Their contracts lasted a year and they did all this work. Mm -hmm. Google got all the benefit from mm -hmm. it. And this person did not get any of the benefits of having worked for Google except a shittier paycheck. That's right. And what, what you're banking on is it's this, the same kind of idea of, you know, when people ask, is there an honorarium for, for my speaking engagement? Right. And you go, no, 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 you're doing it for exposure. The, mm. the actual reasoning back to the contractor is, but you've got to be inside Google for however long. Right. You, you, you got to be exposed to Google. That's which, right. You got to be exposed know, to the, the googly way of doing things. And the interesting thing about this is there has always been another tier of workers, which is food service, janitorial staff, security staff, physical security staff, facilities, you know, maintenance, those those kinds of those kinds of jobs. And it didn't seem to rub tech nearly as much as this. So that's one point, which is it's not a new phenomenon that some people have been working side by side with others, i.e. cleaning your office and not getting any of the benefits that you're getting. But again, getting back to yeah, our... You, you can't work your way up anymore. It, it used to be a no, thing where yeah. you could get into the company doing the shit work but you were part ultimately of the company and, and if you provided exceptional performance and you had good social skills, you could work your way into something worthwhile. And now you've got this prophylactic layer in between the entry stuff and the really good jobs and that's how the companies want it. They, they, they want to keep themselves as liquid as possible because having relationships with companies is a lot more straightforward ultimately for them than having relationships with human beings. That's right. And when you think about the actual implications demographically about who's, lock, who's locked out, right? We all know what that looks like. We all know who has service what sector does it jobs. Look like? We all know that's where people of color and, and in the Bay Area in particular, it's where the Latinx folks are, are the majority in the service sector jobs. We know this, but it's not exclusive to the Latinx community. And we know that if you've created this barrier, that means I can't, this is about it for me. You've ostensibly secured an underclass that continues to look like and data-wise be exactly like what we've always had in this, in this country, except in this case, it's in the name of streamlining and uh, and, uh, you know, 
Flexibility. Flexibility. Look, we, you know, we were taking on a lot of risk by hiring people right out. So if we can just try them out for a little while, it, it, saves, it saves us a lot of money on our side. Meanwhile, this contractor with no health care benefits is riding their bike to work, breaks their leg. And what's their story at that point? Who's actually bearing more risk here? Well, it, it doesn't matter to Google because the contract firm will just send a new one. Right. They're just replaceable little widgets. And so I realize that sounds very, I make that seem overly simplistic and barbaric, but that's the point. It is barbaric. When we do these things that we've been socialized to believe are perfectly reasonable, well, that's perfectly reasonable that a company would want to mitigate risk. And you go, oh, yeah. Let me tell you what these demographics end up looking like. Now let me give you the scenario of the software developer who breaks his leg on the way to work. Now what? There is no humanity in this system. It is about returning investor dollars. It's about investor return. It's about maximum flexibility. It's about somebody it's about pushing the risk elsewhere. The interesting thing about Google is part of why they got a lot of praise early on as this like new generation of company is if you recall, there was a point at which everybody in that company got equity. And so... They were so good to their people, yeah. right? Like that was the whole brand. That's right. The million dollar massage therapist, remember? Mm -hmm. and, and the Google chef like did incredibly chef. well. That's right. All of these people early on. So the instinct was there. This is the incredibly frustrating part, especially watching it happen in tech, is to watch the vultures come and figure out which piece of meat they can pull off of this off of this body is what's incredibly frustrating because it took investors not very long to look at Google and put pressure on the system to go and and you know the founders agreed to it to put pressure on the system and go you know you can yeah, pull they're, they're more they're rich at that point they're good right what, what do they give a fuck it's literally like, let me show you all the places where there's good meat on this bone that you haven't eaten yet. <laughs> Let's pick it clean. We're going to pick it clean. There's going to be nothing for anybody else. We'll let them fight over the bones. It's literally that so that you turn it on its side and you go, oh, look at all that. If we put contractors in here, look at all that good meat, right? We can scale up really quickly and it's okay and we don't dilute um, the expectations for returns for all of the existing employees who just want to keep getting paid that's right. and don't want to not get as much stock next year. Yeah. That's right. And the, the most interesting people for me personally to talk to when I go into a new company is the facilities staff. The facilities, facilities often is the last quote unquote professional or office based job before you get to um, before you get to food service, janitorial, security, et cetera, right? They manage those contracts. But often those facilities folks are aligned with the the people doing the actual labor because that's how they came up in a system, right? Right. They but were they can't understand how to coordinate that work without having done some of it themselves. Exactly. So you've got the person who makes sure that all the HVAC is working, right? And the facilities, the professional facilities office-based person has to interface directly with the person who's doing your HVAC system, right? It has to be credible to that person. Yeah. And so they are literally the point of contact where the two worlds end up meeting and they are pissed. They are Why? pissed because they're consistently the messenger to the service workers that they're going to get squeezed again. They're going to get squeezed again. They're going to get squeezed again. I'm sorry, I can't give you four more hours on that shift. Y'all are going to have to figure out to put uh, how, how to get this work done in six hours instead of 10. Sorry. So, so they never have good news to deliver. They don't have good news to deliver for the most part in these companies because all of, you know, whenever a tech company says we have razor thin margins, I just have to laugh. Like, you don't have razor thin margins. Your janitor has razor thin, razor -thin margins. You have margins like a moat, <laughs> and you think that if, if, if anybody encroaches another inch into your moat, you're gonna, you're gonna, the whole thing's going to crumble because you can't fundamentally share. I don't know what that, that level of greed must feel like, but it is the number of times I've said this in my life and been laughed at, at by like you know somebody who goes, oh, Nicole, you just don't understand capitalism. 
No, I think you don't understand capitalism. Nicole, I believe you went to to school. I did. Uh, where did you attend school? <laughs> I'm assuming you mean college. Yes. Uh, I went to Stanford as an undergraduate, and mm-hmm. I received my MBA at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. I believe that's the real thing. I believe. Well, I mean, it is. There are other real things. It's the real thing according to these rules. And, you know, God bless my dad. Rest in peace. He's the one who said, you got to get every big degree you can possibly get. Because they're not going to listen to you. So they'll leave you the fuck alone. Well, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to listen to you otherwise. Right. And then if you do have this, maybe they'll let you in the door once in a while. But don't expect it to, like, you know, really change anything. And that's been absolutely true. So I usually don't lead with that. I usually don't go into a company unless I've been advised that that company has a particular, um, you know, has a particular penchant for that kind of pedigree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. A a credential fetish. Exactly. Mm -hmm. If there's a credential fetish, then, then I'll lead with that. But it, the bigger point is I shouldn't have to, right? I know a lot about what I do. I've been doing it for 25 years. And at some point, my lived experience is way more important than what I learned in a handful of years that were a small, uh, you know, a quarter of that time. Well, speaking of vultures and business, it turns out <laughs> speaking of vultures, that as much as a third of the economy has been swallowed up uh, by the so-called gig economy, mm. So we, we can take it a, a step further than just contractors. We don't, we, we, the contractors, oh, that, that's, that's a lot of overhead. What if we just had a bunch of independent contractors that we could fire and otherwise direct like employees, but we don't have to give them benefits and we don't have to pay them very well. This is the grand innovation that was discovered about a decade ago. And it has been going so well that it turns out like a third of jobs are now these bullshit gig economy jobs. And that takes our precarious work situation to a whole new level. Mm. When you got one of these gig economy jobs, you got nothing aside from whatever the app gives you that day. Mm -hmm. And they can turn you off whenever. Whenever. And I've seen it happen. It's brutal. It's brutal. And it's honest work. I, look, there is a very short list of jobs that people do that I go, really? Of all the things you could have done that? It's a very, very short list. And it mostly has to do with, like, injustices, you know? Right. Uh, and so there is nothing wrong with the work itself in a gig economy. Everybody's got to make do. Of but, course not. They're, they're just getting fucked. They're not getting a good deal. They're not. And, 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 but they don't have an alternative. And when you think about how much money is lost, for example, due to depreciation on a fleet of cars. Right. If you don't have to account for any depreciation of any equipment at all, because you technically don't own it, your contractor does. Oh, that, that is the great scam this is the, this of is the Uber shell game. This and is the shell game. of Airbnb. You don't own any of this stuff, you offload all of the risk, all of the depreciation, all of this onto third parties, and then you just pay them within an inch of their lives what they need to survive, and then you you get to do fine. Yeah, you get to do fine. And so, you know, it's another, it's a, there's nothing, and also there's nothing to work towards. Right. There are incentive bonuses where it's like if you drive X number of times in a week, which is like a ridiculously difficult um, number. Right. You'd have to be working like six or seven days to hit that. And um, there's no break built in. But if you get to X number of hundred rides in this amount of time, you'll get, you know, a couple hundred extra dollars, which makes a huge freaking difference. A couple hundred dollars makes a huge difference when your margins are actually thin. Now, you get sick, your car breaks down, weather You're out. is... The game's over. It's you, over. you got nothing. Every time somebody, and not including in, in Amsterdam, but anytime somebody comes up to me on a bicycle and I'm like, oh, maybe New York City is a little different too, but I'm like, oh man, one rainy day, this person's just toast, mm-hmm. right? Not only does it become incredibly unsafe, 
but you get sick, you can't do your work, people are mad because by the time you get there, it's wet, and you're like, shit. I've got, yeah, I, I won't my... do on-demand stuff at all if it's raining because, like, I just I don't I don't want to be contributing to that. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I I said the same, and then I tried to get a cab. This is the other hard part, right? When we're actually honest with ourselves about how much easier some of the stuff has made life, like how much less friction you can have. Um, you know, it is it has decimated parallel. Uh, industries, right? So I was in Vancouver and I tried to get a cab because there is there is no ride share up there and it was impossible because people are expecting ride share and cabs which are very um restricted, the restricted medallions in Vancouver um you know, there are there simply aren't enough cabs for the number of people who are expecting rides. Mm. And and so I go, "Damn, well that's not right either <laughs> because I would like you know I, I would like for people to be able to get from point A to point B on demand that actually sounds pretty great an investment in public transportation for example where I live in the East Bay uh, in San Francisco East Bay oh where, where it takes an, an hour to get a BART to go anywhere right right and uh, you know this is where I grew up and it's like nobody asks if it's near a BART or like which which station are you near right like because no one's just no one's taking for granted that that's part of that's just not part of the deal it's it's like such a huge bonus if you can walk to a BART station from from anywhere in the Bay Area San Francisco is a little bit different and I do think people should be able to go from point A to point B on demand and yet not on the backs of people who are already incredibly vulnerable right I had a friend who is a teacher. I have a friend who's a teacher in San Francisco. And he called me one day and he said, so I need to take a, I need to take another job. And I'm thinking of, you know, doing one of the ride shares. And I just, like, my heart just, I was like, you're a respected teacher of 20-something years in San Francisco. Your students and their families love you. You should be able to live on one very decently paying job, which it's not, you know, being a teacher in San Francisco doesn't pay decently. Nope. You should be just fine living as a teacher in San Francisco. And yet you are not. San Francisco really doesn't want anyone living there who <laughs> isn't making 300 a year. Uh, it, I just don't know how like, you do. I, I don't well, know how you do. Well, you get a job at Google. And if you can't get a job at Google, then you should get fucked. And that is <laughs> I mean, why San Francisco is I, dying. I guess that's it. And this friend is in you know, one of the last gasps of uh, rent control, you know, mm, and he stayed mm-hmm. in the same apartment for decades. You have to. What else are you going to do? It's uh, it's heartbreaking on the one hand. It's honest work on the other. And it is about investor return, shareholder return every single time. When I used to teach um, at the business school and hopefully will again soon, I would say to my students, do you know that you're not beholden by law to make decisions that are just about maximizing shareholder return. The jaws would drop on the ground. Like, what do you mean? Because that, that is an understood yeah. implicit reality. Yeah. And, and it has been reinforced. And, and, I, and I was you, like... You know, Jack Welch regrets it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. At, at GE, he was the originator of this cult of maximizing shareholder value. Right. And at this stage, he is kind of sheepish about the whole thing. He thinks it's really silly. It it was it, it made him a hero for a time and now he gets to look around and look at the world that was created from it. And the world that was created from it is kind of horrifying. It's horrifying. And imagine if the lesson was you your job as a responsible steward of this company is to create a balance between um, shareholder you know shareholder value impact on society and the climate and worker satisfaction. Stakeholder responsibility, you might say. I like it. Stakeholder responsibility. Because now you're talking about everybody. You're right. Then you're, talking, then you're talking about the investors. You're talking about the employees. And you're talking about the communities that you impact. Imagine if that was the mandate where it's like you need to balance these three things out. And, you know, I... I I would never overly romanticize some other era of capitalism because I think it's all been fucked. But at one point there was this idea that, you know, when there was a big business in town, people 
worked at that big business. Now, it was definitely bifurcated along race lines and, and those kinds of things. But, you know, this is a, this is a, a steel town. And our right. steel mill is X, and we all have benefited from the presence of this steel mill for the last several. And, and it underpins the economy, and it's, it's right. good for everybody. Right. Now we come to find out, oh, this is not helping the environment the way that we wanted it to. So let's together, and I know I sound really Pollyanna, but like let's together as a community figure out how to pivot how to pivot ourselves and adapt ourselves to the to the needs we have learned we you know we have to consider. Great. I I am so tired of being told that I'm naive about these things because I've seen groups of people make extraordinary decisions like that. And when they are well managed and when it is a diverse group of people and when they all feel like they have a voice, the creativity of what can come next is boundless. And so like, it drives I, Sorry, go ahead. I really like the the parable of the Ben and Jerry's company for this <laughs> mm. Be, because they are they're to me this magic unicorn of an example of what can happen when you structure the business around more than just money. Like their catchphrase for it is a, a double bottom line. Mm -hmm. And what's unique about Ben and Jerry's, there's a phenomenal book on this called Ice Cream Social. I highly recommend it. What happens is Unilever comes in to buy Ben and Jerry's in the late 90s. The Ben and Jerry's folks insert some language in the terms of the acquisition that, that gives them some, some leverage to maintain the quality and maintain the social and, and cultural goals of the organization. And damned if they didn't pull it off, Unilever tried to subvert the quality of the ice cream and actually succeeded for a little while where they just really diluted it and it wasn't very good and people weren't enthusiastic anymore. Mm -hmm. And the original crew had the leverage to turn that ship around. And so it's not like this is an impossible notion to create businesses that have a higher calling than just maximizing the value. It's possible. Ben and Jerry's is fucking delicious even today. Even if you don't enjoy dairy, Ben and Jerry's has something delicious to sell to you, that right? That is true. That so is very true. They've got, they've got it. They figured it out. It's not impossible. It just requires people to be creative and to be committed and I, I think we're coming to a point where a lot more people are going to have an appetite for that sort of commitment. Well, and we did see in the 90s the rise of, of corporate social responsibility, or CSR has its own whole, its, its own whole discipline now. And uh, I think folks have often said, oh, you're in CSR to me, and, and, and I'm not. And the reason is that CSR ended up being synonymous in a lot of places with environmental. Um, it's a greenwashing thing, right? Like th this feels like a reaction to Exxon Valdez. Right, right, right. And, and, and I think that's, that's fine. I think that there are companies that have truly done it the way, according to their own set of expressed and held, deeply held values, like Patagonia, right? Right. I think Patagonia is another one of those examples. We are also talking about companies that don't particularly have the best race lens or can figure out how to translate their values that they put out into the world into a workplace where those things also hold true. And so one of the things I often find when I'm talking to companies is they'll say, well, we have all these values and we're doing all this good stuff out in the world. And then you look inside right at, you know, the people who are working in that office every day and you wonder how in the world can you be so strong out there and miss such huge uh, red flags inside your own culture because you can get to the point where CSR becomes an external exercise and that level of responsibility isn't extended to your coworkers. And so that is another reason why I don't stay in CSR because it's very much about external impact and not a ton about workplace culture. And I think if you're going to have deeply held value, values that you espouse, those also have to be on point internally. Um, and if they miss a, a lens on, especially on race, but on race, on gender, on sexual orientation, on religion, on those kinds of things, if you miss that lens, you're, you're going to end up with a very well-meaning yet kind of um, 
flim, flimsily impactful company. Um, what you want are the ones where you've got people from all backgrounds going out and bragging about it. This is the best place to work. We make the best stuff. I'm so proud to be selling what I'm selling. I'm so proud to be, you know, building what I'm building. Um, that is that is the key that you have to do in inside and outside work. I had the notion that we had a couple of leftover questions that we never got to answer. Oh, here, here's an interesting one. I was listening to episode seven and thinking about how expensive it is to pay down cultural debt. What can company founders do to get ahead of that and set themselves up to take on an amount of cultural debt that can be paid off at a reasonable rate? What can founders do to set themselves up to be inclusive, to not become all that white dude team looking for their first diversity hire? I think that you need an expert. <laughs> These folks need an expert. And I'm not trying to sell anybody my services. You, you, but the idea, think about it if it were finance, right? And you said we've got tons of, not financial debt, but like systems debt in finances or engineering, right? We've got tons of technical debt. What do you do? You go find someone who is a specialist at making up that debt, that tech debt, that systems debt. And the same thing has to do in culture. Now, what is frustrating is that oftentimes, unlike in those other areas, there are a lot of founders who do not know what they don't know. So what they think they're looking for in, in trying to bring in a, an organizational culture expert to either work part-time in a consulting fashion or full-time as, as the culture owner, they think they're looking for someone they like. And that's not what you're looking for. The Somebody who is worth their salt at organizational culture work is trying to build equitable, fair, inclusive systems and is trying to figure out how to propagate the best of what um, of what this company already is throughout the entire system and reducing the bad habits that the organization has already picked up. So the question, you would want to ask more questions like, um, how do you enact a, a value that seems to have been forgotten in as the company has has um, has expanded, right? And you want to listen to for a systemic answer, somebody who understands systems of people for how you implement the values that your company espouses. It doesn't really matter if you like this person. If you like this person for some personal reason, you may actually be enacting bias in ways that aren't going to help. And you're just hiring another person like you who's going to build another culture that's a lot like the one you were going to build. So, so should one of these people make you uncomfortable? Is, is that the goal? Like discomfort is a good thing in a culture where not just that you experience discomfort, but when there is discomfort, does somebody there know what to do with that in order to turn it into something useful? Discomfort is often incredibly useful. If, if you've ever been in a meeting where it's just gotten kind of awkward and then somebody says a synthesizing, makes a synthesizing statement like, well, Nicole, that's really interesting that you think that. And when I hear Danilo say what he's saying, it brings up this other thing for me where can you combine these two ideas, right? Or I feel like we might not even be disagreeing about the thing we're talking about. It feels like there's something else going on here. If you've yeah. got a culture that can sustain that level of conversation, you're golden. And so if you are uncomfortable with a person, it shouldn't be because they, you know, creep you out or something, but it should be because they're stretching your thinking on things and asking you questions that you haven't considered about your own culture. And it's okay that you haven't thought about it. You're not, you didn't get into this work because you were an organizational development expert. You didn't get in this work because you were a finance expert. Maybe you are a software development expert and that's what got you into this, but that's not enough to sustain a company either. And if you keep running an entire company the way your engineering team ran, you're going to miss a whole lot of opportunities and create a lot of a lot a lot more cultural debt. So I think, you know, putting front and center that you're looking for someone who can, who actually has done this before and and letting the rest of your very small team know that you are prioritizing this such that you are willing to put resources behind it. I, I will often get an email that's like, hey, my my company, my startup is is facing some you know, some stuff. Can I pick your brain? And we all know it, if you're still asking if you can pick your brain, it means you're not paying attention to right. the conversation. But 
it still happens. And I, and, and I'll say something like, you know, I'm happy to, and then turn it into sort of a sales call. Right. This is 25 years of, of expertise that I can't give you in a 45 minute thing that we, that we scheduled through Calendly. I can't. This is an ongoing kind of issue. That's right. And just like you wouldn't call a CFO and be like, Hey, can I pick your brain about how to build new financial systems? The same holds true for culture work. Hey, and could, it, you, could you help me set up my QuickBooks? When I was at Hitmonk, I had this conversation with, with Steve Huffman, who, who had founded Reddit and is, is now back at Reddit running it again. Um, he was my boss at the time. And I'll never forget this conversation. It was really interesting the way he described it. We were, I think, at around a dozen people at, at like, the month before, and we, we brought on a few more people, and, and it, it turned into a mess. And he told me that he heard from one of his friends in Y Combinator that the drama starts at 15. <laughs> that at 15 people, there was just enough complexity organizationally that now there was drama in places that, you know, did, did not previously have mm-hmm. drama in your organization. And what I thought was most interesting and later most most striking about this was that he said it in this way that was just like, what can you do? It's just, <laughs> it's this thing, it's going to happen, it's going to fall on you. Right, And right. Wh- how can you prevent the rain, right? right? And so what you're saying here is, I think it makes a lot of sense. The only problem that I hear with it is, you know that I agree you know that I think that it's important to have experts doing expert work from accounting to engineering to organizational culture, right? Who the fuck do you hire for this? There's like, <laughs> there's you, but you have things to do and you are already booked, right? And it, it would be like if there were four accountants on the entire planet and and there was nothing to be done. Like there's just not the volume of people for small organizations to be able to straightforwardly engage someone to come in and solve the problem. So what do you do? It's interesting because the biggest uptick in clients for me for the last year has been VC firms for this reason, because they realize that all of their startups can't be or have culture experts on them. But can we make somebody... So it's a portfolio service. It's a portfolio service. Or, you know, I'll get hired to come do trainings for founders on organizational culture or inclusive management or whatever, whatever the topic is. And then you can you can feed a lot of birds with one seed. Right. And and that works. But what I am also seeing, and this is very gratifying when I when I'm out giving talks and stuff, inevitably, there's there are a bunch of younger people than me who are saying, I want to do the work that you do. How do I start? And that makes me really excited because I can see a future where people are actually trained in some in some very formal way to do this work, where they become fluent in the research, where they, you know, there Wait, are some you schools that... You don't that, hear them say this and advise them to run, run <laughs> screaming for, for the hills, never come back. If, it, if it's your calling, it's your calling. I don't know. I love messy, interpersonal cross demographic issues. I, I love it. I love the history of it. I love helping people sort it out. And I think there are others who do also. But yeah, if if, if somebody came up to me and was like, so I'm thinking of it about doing an easy job like the one you do, I would say run. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so portfolio services is one. And then we're also starting to put out trainings that are open to the public because the demand has been so great. Um, to say, just help me get started. And so we'll do, you know, a night for startups. Um, We'll do uh, an AMA. We'll do, you know, things like that, just to give people a a boost because everybody does need to learn this or access this information in one way or another. So Nicole is terrible at at plugging herself. So (laughs) I I will help. Nicole is actually hosting a training in New York City at the end of October We'll have a link in the show notes that you can go and register for this fantastic training you can learn from Nicole. So that's our show. And it's been a blast to be back together, Nicole. Thank you for, oh, for hanging out I as love always. It. Thank you, Danilo. Thank you for giving us your time on the way to work or while you do whatever it is that you do while you listen to podcasts. 
We would love your questions. We want to answer your questions and give you just a little bit of extra sanity in dealing with your tough workplace quandaries. If you have a question for us, please visit our form for submitting these things. It's at ask.impossibletomanage.com. That's ask.impossibletomanage.com. And let us know what is on your mind. And we'll be back soon. Thank you.